Think about that. All right, so I believe this is number eight in our Obadiah study. So we're making some good progress. We're over halfway through the book. What, uh, what so far, anything that stands out to you about Obadiah? Anything? Colton? Yeah, uh, it's small, often goes unnoticed. You think so? I tend to agree. It is very condensed. Zach? Edom's warning. Yeah, there's a lot of warning for Edom, huh? Yep, Elise? Hmm, a very elusive writer. In other words, we don't know much about him. Yeah? Mm. Anything else that stood out to you so far? All right, well, we are... We're down in Obadiah, verse 15, is where we're picking it up. Um, So, remember, it's a, a vision. The vision of Obadiah of Obadiah written against Edom. Um, it's judgment coming from God because of their sin, because of their sin and participating in the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember that? Remember that? So they, when Babylon came in 586 BC to destroy Jerusalem, Edom, they joined in and they helped destroy their own brother Jacob. Remember the history of Esau and Jacob. So that's the history Here's our outline from the book. First, we looked at verses 2 through 14. Verse 1 kind of sets the stage. God calls. He sends a messenger to the nations, and he calls the nations to come and to destroy Edom because of their sin. And so we get the nation's response that they say, arise and let us go up to battle against her. So we have this vengeance of God against Edom, against Esau, and now we're looking at God's victory for Jacob. First, it starts off with some good news that's bad news. It's bad news for Esau and for the nations, but it's good news for Jacob. So it's the bad good news. That's how one scholar put it. Then, then we get the good good news that's just pure good news about Jacob. So we'll read it here. Pick it up in verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen or the nations. As you have done, it shall be done unto you. Your reward shall return upon your own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken it. And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the plain the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath. 
And the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That last line, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That's the key theme of this entire book is God is in control. He's in charge and he's the one. He is the true king. But as we work through this, what we find, here's your, here's your outline. We're looking at least at numbers one and two this evening. Number three will probably take us to another night. But uh, first off, we get this announcement of the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord. Yahweh, um, that's just the four letters in English of God's personal name. Yud, Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. Um, often it's transliterated for us, Yehovah or Yahweh or Jehovah. You've probably heard some of that before. So it's the day of the Lord. We get the announcement of the day of the Lord in the first part of verse 15. Then we get the ultimate fate of Esau and the nations in the rest of verse 15 and in verse 16. And then there's a contrasting fate of Jacob, what we'll get to, Lord willing, next time um, in verses 17 and 18. But let me ask you, what, uh, what observations did you make there as we read through verses 15 to 21? Any observations from the text? Things that stood out to you? Do you know what I mean when I say an observation? Kind of. It's like putting on our detective cap. Just like a detective has to look for clues to figure out who did the crime, we look for the clues in the scripture of what it's talking about. So you're asking the, the investigative questions like a journalist. Who, what, where, when, why, how. Okay? Those are the questions we're looking for. Observations. They can be simple. Anything? Colton? good. So that's what an observation is. Elise? Um, in a lot of these verses, uh, the start of the chapter kind of builds up to the rest of it. The rest of it, from 15 to 21, is mostly speaking about how um, Esau's brother is going to be over him so, so much to the point that Esau's uh, it's going to be like dirt. They're going to be like dirt and um, their brother's eyes are going to be better than them and the Lord is going to be over him. Yeah, it's good. Who had their hand up over here? John, was that you? Did other observations you made? Anything that stood out? The whole. Go ahead, Colton. Yeah, 
just standing on the sideline. Yeah, they were just standing on the sideline. Yep. So in this book, Obadiah, who has the judgment primarily been against? Edom. Against Edom. But did you notice in verse 15, against whom is the day of the Lord? It's not just for Edom. The day of the Lord is for all nations. Okay, there's an observation. That's right. Basically, even then, this last part of basically of where Mount there would be deliverance hasn't even happened yet. That's right. Isn't that cool? We've still we've got a part of this prophecy that's yet future to us. That's exciting. So exactly what Isaac just said. We've been focusing on this judgment for Esau, but it extends to all nations. All nations will one day be judged by a holy and a just God. So a fancy word for that is Esau's fate, his judgment, provides a paradigm or a microcosm, a little picture of the big picture of the nation's judgment. He, Esau's judgment serves as an example of how God will judge all the nations. Does that make sense? So that's how he moves from this judgment for Esau into, then he says, the day of the Lord's upon all nations. Um, here's one cool, remember we talked about an inclusio last week? Do you remember that a little bit? This cool idea, it's you take two ideas and you use it as a sandwich and you put content in between. Remember that? So we have another inclusio here using Esau. So we've got, um, we start out with right up here. We've got, as you have done, it shall be done unto you. So that's referring to Edom, to Esau. As Esau has done, it's going to be done unto Esau. Then he comes back to that. He talks about the nations for a while, and he talks about Jacob. And then at the end of verse 18, he comes back and he says, and there shall, be, there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau. See that? So we've got an inclusio of how we move and talk about Esau on both sides, and sandwiched in between is some content that he's going to talk to us about. See that? It's just a cool observation, especially if you like literature. Zoe's not here tonight, so does anybody else like literature? Help me out here. Oh, good. Okay, so we're not alone here. Good. You don't have to lie if you don't. It's okay. <laughs> literature homework is a very different thing. Agreed. Okay, um, so this is an interesting observation that we're going to make as we continue walking through this text. But notice, God's justice involves... Wrath for the wicked, Esau, but it also involves restoration for his people according to the covenant. And we're going to go and look at some of that tonight, God's covenant with Israel, with the people of Jacob, and why this wrath for the wicked also involves future hope and restoration for God's chosen people of Israel. I think that's pretty neat. Um, But then let's remember our context here. Our context. So Obadiah 2 through 10, we talked about that first. Um, It's God's sentence that Edom is going to be destroyed. Remember, he talks about how Esau views himself as high and lifted up. He dwells in the rocks up high. He's like a vulture, like an eagle. And he says in his heart, no one can bring me down. 
So God takes the challenge and he says, I'm going to bring you down. I'm going to make you small, insignificant among the nations. Then we talked through Obadiah verses 11 through 14. That was last time. Um, was God started with the judgment. He started with um, the sentencing of Esau, and then he brings the evidence against Esau. He lists off Esau's crimes. Remember, he had eight crimes that he listed. Um, and what that does is it shows God's justice in bringing judgment on Esau. Esau had earned it through his crimes. So now we're in Obadiah 15 through 18, how God uses the judgment on Esau to demonstrate that judgment is coming for all the nations. So that's our thought flow through the book so far. Are you following it? Feel like you're getting a good grasp of the thought flow of Obadiah? Maybe? Good. All right, so let's start out Obadiah 15 with this announcement of the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord. Um, he starts out, let me make this bigger, I can't see my screen. He starts out with this English word for. What part of speech would you say that is? Do any of you like grammar? Conjunction. A conjunction. See? So it's a conjunction. Um, for. But this word, it's kind of interesting because typically it's translated for, it can be translated because or that. Um, here, another way it could be translated is surely. And what this conjunction is doing is it's highlighting the climax of the book. The entire book, the entire flow of this judgment on Esau, all these crimes that Esau has committed is leading up to this point. He says, surely the day of the Lord is upon all the nations. But then here's a question. What is this day of the Lord? What is this day of the Lord that he's talking about in verse 15? Any thoughts? Can you think of any other points where you've seen that come up in Scripture? Ezekiel? Okay, so yeah, it's got some eschatological, in other words, end times implications, doesn't it, when Christ comes back? Yeah. Jesus on the white horse? Yeah. So we won't spend too long on this, but don't forget... We've seen this word already. It started back in verse 8. If you remember that, um, God said, Shall I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom? What we had there is the day of Esau. Remember that? The day of Esau, he's saying, is yet future when Obadiah wrote it. It was not too long after fulfilled. When a couple generations later, King Nabonidus from Babylon comes in and he destroys the whole nation of Edom. Remember that? But that was the day of Esau. To Obadiah, it was still future. To us, it's past. But the day of Esau was the day of Esau's judgment. Then, verses 11 through 14, he repeatedly uses it, referring to the day of Jacob, where he's telling Esau, you should not have stood um, in the gate. You should not have carried away captives. And repeatedly, he keeps using, in the day of their calamity, in the day of their distress. Remember that? So the day of Jacob was referring to the judgment on Israel, on Judah, back in 586 B.C. Following that so far? But now, to us, both of those are past events. They're in the past tense, right? They happened 1,500 years ago, approximately. Sorry, 2,500 years ago, approximately. You guys okay? 
Deep breaths, deep breaths. Um, so now we get this day of the Lord, which is still a future day for us. He uses that in verse 15. The day of the Lord is near upon all nations. So if we traced this through, um, let's, let's go back to Deuteronomy 28. So if you've got your Bibles, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28 is God's covenant with the people, and it's his reiteration. He's giving them these cursings and these blessings. He says, if you obey and keep the covenant, you will experience blessing. But for the people of Israel, if they disobeyed, they would experience cursing. And that's what exile was. It was part of the curses for their disobedience to God. But look here with me, Deuteronomy 28, started out in verse 1. Is everybody there? You ready? Look at Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. And it shall come to pass, if you will hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord your God, to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command you this day, that the Lord your God will set you on high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings will come on you and overtake you, if you will hearken unto the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed you will be in the city, and blessed you will be in the field. Blessed will be the fruit of your body, the fruit of your ground, the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your kind, the flocks of your sheep. Blessed shall be, the, shall be your basket and your store. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed you will be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies that rise up against you to be smitten before your face. They will come against you one way and flee before you seven ways. And he keeps going. But highlight... Just notice that phrase at the end of verse 1. He says, When you observe and do all of these commandments which I command you this day, the Lord your God will set you on high above all nations of the earth. That's still future even to us now. But to the Israelites, that was something to look forward to. When they would be the highest nation on earth, they would be in charge of everything. So they're looking forward to that. So picture this. Jerusalem has just been destroyed. Everyone's been taken captive. There's still a few fugitives, refugees in the land of Judah. How do you think everyone from Judah is feeling? A little downcast maybe? A little dejected? They might feel like God doesn't love them. But then Obadiah, he starts talking about, well, the day of the Lord, it's coming. There will be saviors who go up on Mount Zion, and they're going to judge the Mount of Esau. Did you see that as we were working through Obadiah? That's referring to this day when God said he will exalt them above all the nations. That's still coming. So this starts the idea of the day of the Lord. Um, You can go back. Let's go to Amos 5. Let's go to Amos 5. So if if you struggle to find it, Amos is right before Obadiah. Joel, Amos, Obadiah. All right. So go over to Amos chapter 5, because Amos was the first guy to use this concept of the day of the Lord. Amos wrote his book back before the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel, and that happened in 722 BC, so um, about 150 years before the destruction of Judah. Remember that? So Amos is writing, warning the northern kingdom of Israel that they have impending judgment if they choose to keep going in disobedience. So Amos 5, verse 18. He says, Woe unto you 
that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. As if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent or a snake bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it? Here's the picture that we get. Amos is telling these people of Israel, he says, hey, woe on you. In other words, this is not a good thing to long for the day of the Lord. Because before comes the exaltation of Israel, there's a lot of judgment that goes in between. He says it's not light, it's a dark time. It's like running away from a lion and a bear comes and gobbles you up. It's like going in the house and leaning your hand on the wall all comfortable, feeling like you're safe, and a snake comes out and bites you. You might think the day of the Lord is bringing deliverance, but first it brings judgment. Um, You can go and look at more of these. There's tons of content about the day of the Lord through the prophets. This is just a summary of some of the key passages. Um, Joel talks a lot about it. Zephaniah talks a lot about it. But the picture we get of the day of the Lord is when God is fed up with the wickedness of mankind and he comes and he intervenes in human history and he brings the fullness of his wrath poured out and unleashed against sin. That's the day of the Lord. And that's why Amos says, woe unto you if you desire the day of the Lord because it's a time of darkness, not of light. It's scary. But he says, if you go back to Obadiah, if you're in Amos, it's not too far away. Go back to Obadiah now. He says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. That's a pretty easy word, right? What does the word near mean? What does near mean? Close to you. Close to you. That's right. That's an easy one. Well done. The word near, it gives us this idea of it's close, it's impending, it's coming quickly. Um, We see it, and to us, it's still a future event. Go ahead, Colton. Yeah, exactly. The day when Christ will come, it's near. Yeah, and now realize... um, We could go and look at some of these texts. Um, Ezekiel, you don't have to turn there, but Ezekiel, sorry, I'm trying to find it in my notes. Well, yes, thank you. I've got that, but I was trying to find it in my notes here. Yeah, so Ezekiel 12.22, he says, Son of man, what is that proverb that you have in the land of Israel, saying, the days are prolonged and every vision fails? The picture we get is that Israel, they kept thinking, the day of the Lord, it's far off. God's not going to hold us accountable for our actions. Judgment, oh, who knows? God may never even really judge. They had a picture that it was far off, that they would be able to get away with sin. That was the picture that Israel had. So in Ezekiel, he says, what's that proverb you have that says that the days will be prolonged, every vision fails? In other words, God's not going to keep his promises. Or hear his threats. So Obadiah, he's countering that. He says the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. Realize, none of us can escape the judgment of God. Just like Judah found that the judgment of God was inescapable 
as they went into captivity to Babylon. Just as Esau found that the judgment of God was inescapable when they were destroyed by (laughs) Babylon, so also the day of the Lord is near for all the nations. The judgment of God is inescapable. For anyone who thinks they can um, stick it to God and say, God, you can't touch me, the same fate (laughs) will occur to them that occurred to Esau. You follow that? That's pretty serious. I just think this is an interesting, he says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. You could go and look at Zephaniah 1.16. This preposition can be translated against. It's against all the nations. So Obadiah, he comes with a sense of urgency and he tells them, hey, warning, this is dangerous. The day of the Lord is near. Judgment is coming. So let's learn what the nature of this judgment is. What's the ultimate fate of Esau and of the nations? The rest of verse 15. As you have done, it will be done unto you. Your reward shall return upon your own head. As you have done, it will be done to you. Okay, so as you have done, it will be done to you. Let me go back to this one for just a second. This. Okay, so think about grammar for just a second. It's okay, don't worry, it's not too hard. Your pronouns come in persons. So you have the first person is talking about I or we in the plural. Mm -hmm. Then in second person, that would be you. It can be you singular or you plural, which some in the South would say y'all, right? And then third person, you have he, she, it, or they. Okay, so these are second person. So... Up here in verse 15, as you have done, it will be done to you. Those are second person singular. They're second person singular pronouns. And that's the pronoun that has been used down through verses 11 through 14, speaking of Esau, when God says, you should not have, you should not have cut off the fugitives. You should not have taken them captive. So similarly here, it refers to Esau. He says, as you... Speaking of Esau, as you have done, it will be done unto you, Esau. But then Obadiah says, does something interesting. So we had these two at the top. As you have done, it will be done unto you. Those are singular. We've got your reward will return on your own head. That's singular. But then in verse 16, we find as you have drunk upon my holy mountain. That one is plural. So who Obadiah is talking about switches. Did you follow that? Or was that too much grammar? Did that make sense? Okay, good. I should have changed colors. That's what I should have done. Then you would have followed me. Let me try it. Let's see if changing colors helps us. (coughs) Boom. When we get to the you or the ye in verse 16, that's you plural. So it switches who he's talking about. Verse 15, all the yous speak of Esau. Verse 16, we'll talk about who the you refers to. Did that make sense? Feel like you're with me? Okay, good. So let's go back to the other slide we were at. So as you, Edom, have done, it will be done unto you. 
We could go and look back at Ezekiel uh, verses, chapter 35, verses 1 through 15. I'll just read for us, verse 15. But in Ezekiel, he has um, a messenger comes to Ezekiel, and he reports that the destruction of Jerusalem has just taken place. He says, I just escaped from the destruction of Jerusalem. And he reports this to Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel was a contemporary of Obadiah, but Obadiah was in the land of Judah. But Ezekiel, he was a captive in the land of Babylon. You following me? So this fugitive comes and tells Ezekiel, Jerusalem was just destroyed. And so the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel, and he gives a vision of judgment against Edom, because they had participated. And Ezekiel 35, verse 15, Ezekiel says, As you did... As you did rejoice at the inheritance of the house of Israel, because it was desolate, so will I do unto you. You will be desolate, O Mount Seir, and all Idumea, that's speaking of Edom, even all of it, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So this is essential, this principle that's called retributive justice. Retributive justice. Has anyone ever heard that term, retributive justice? What is retribution? The law of retribution. You know, Isaac? I was going to say um, retribution, um, justice. Exactly. Whatever you do, you're going to get. That's the picture we get here in verse 15. As Edom did, it's going to be done unto them. Your deeds will return upon your own head. So remember, if you went back and looked at verses 11 through 14, the kinds of crimes that Esau committed, those are the same sorts of things that are going to be done to them in their own judgment. How they murdered the people who were fleeing. They took people captive and gave them over to Babylon. How they pillaged the city and stole all the possessions. Those are the (laughs) sorts of things that will happen in their own judgment. So... Some people call it lex talionis. That's just a Latin phrase. Lex talionis, it means the law of retaliation. It's actually a biblical concept of what true justice is. So you could go and look at these passages, Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. One of the instances that is given in this law, um, the law for Israel, is a pregnant woman. Okay, so we have a woman who's pregnant. She has an infant inside of her womb. And two guys near her get in a fight. And they're fighting. And somehow in the course of the fight, one of the guys hits the pregnant woman's stomach. And so then the law says, okay, whatever happens to the woman or the child, that's what should be done to that man. So if the child's okay, everything's going to be okay for that guy. But if the child comes out maimed, like say they lost a hand because of it that guy's going to have his hand cut off. If the child dies, that man will lose his life. That's the law of retribution, is that just as you did the crime you committed, that is your punishment. The other one of these talks about a false witness. If a false witness gets before the court and they lie and they say, that person's guilty, when they full well know that person's innocent, the same punishment that that person would have get, gotten if they were unjustly convicted is the punishment that the false witness would receive. Does that make sense? That's the law of retribution. 
And interestingly enough, that argues that the child in the womb of the mother is a person. Not just, not just a piece of tissue. They're in a real person in the womb of that mother because there's the same value placed on their life as on the life of the mother and the life of the individual who inadvertently injured them. Ezekiel? So you're telling me that for every single person that has had an abortion, the person that did it leads to that? Yes. So we're not going to take it to its extreme, Ezekiel, but what it does tell us is that abortion is the murder of an unborn baby. So therefore, it's that person's death. Well... I'll let you go and try to argue that. That's probably a dangerous argument to take. And it's, yeah, you're probably not going to enjoy the results you get trying to, trying to say that. Isaac? Wait, so basically just so then um, if he kills the mother, just so then uh, will they kill him twice? I don't think that's possible. Nathan? Okay. So the principle that we find is this retributive justice. That the same actions that you commit of crimes and sin are the same punishment that's going to end up on your own head. Cool. Yeah, exactly. Just like how in some cultures in the Middle East, if a thief steals, their hand gets cut off because that's what they use to commit the crime. Exactly. Same principle. <clears throat> but then... Verse 16 gives us another principle, what um, this, uh, this commentator named Daniel Block, he calls it the distributive principle of divine justice. Let me just comment on this for just a second. If you're looking at it, go back to verse 16. <clears throat> for as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen, or the nations, drink continually. Yes, they will drink, and they will swallow down, and they will be as though they had not been. So the picture that we get is Esau, they committed crimes, and they become the paradigm for the judgment that's also coming for the nations. But remember how we said that in verse 15, the U's were singular, but now that we're here in verse 16, the U is plural. For as you, plural, have drunk on my holy mountain. So the question is this, who was it who drank on the holy mountain of God? Now drink in this context is a metaphor for receiving the just wrath of God. Okay, we can't build that whole context. When we get back to our Q&A questions, um, probably next month, we've actually got a question where we'll talk about this. It's talking about when Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, praying to his father. Um, the cup is the just wrath of God. Suffice it to say that for now. But the question is, who drunk, who drank on God's holy mountain? You plural. If it's Esau, why does he switch from second person singular to plural now? Okay, but it could be Esau drinking to celebrate Jerusalem's destruction. The second option, though, well, you tell me. Can you think of any other? Who else could it have been? Especially if we keep the metaphor consistent of drinking judgment, receiving judgment on God's holy Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem. Who received judgment at Jerusalem? Isaac? Colton? Um, I was thinking of like Edom and the nation who attacked. 
Okay. Yeah. Emily? What were you going to say? You had your hand raised, right? Oh, I thought you did. I'm sorry. Okay, so Edom and Babylon, but they were dishing out God's judgment. Remember that? They dished out God's judgment at Jerusalem. Who received God's judgment at Jerusalem? Ezekiel? No, this is to answer the other question. This might be completely wrong, but we just need reservations. So uh, <clears throat> the armies of the world gathered on Mount Zion and was destroyed there. That okay, could be. That one's even still future, right? So this one's in the past tense. Who drank God's judgment at Mount Zion? Was it not the inhabitants of Jerusalem? Here's the picture that we get. Just as Esau dished out wrath, they're going to receive God's judgment. But just as Judah received God's judgment and Babylon and Edom, they said, yeah, God's judging Judah. Well, God's justice is distributive. In other words, no one can escape the justice of God. Just like Judah received God's judgment, for as you, speaking of Judah, remember that's our audience for the book. Obadiah is preaching this sermon probably there in Judah to the, to the remnant. As you, Judah, have drunk upon my holy mountain, so will all the nations drink continually. They're going to get God's judgment as well. Do you follow that? So he says, yes, they will drink and they will swallow down and they will be as though they had not been. A pretty strong picture of the justice of God. We've got one more thing I want to talk about, but first, any thoughts or comments or questions thus far? We're almost done. Thoughts or comments on that? Are you following the two principles of God's justice we got? Retributive justice means your punishment will be like your crime. Distributive justice means no one can escape God's justice. Does that make sense? Okay, excellent. So, Take your Bibles, let's go Psalm 94, and with this we'll be done. Psalm 94, and as you're going over there, I want to read to you another verse from Deuteronomy 32. God says in Deuteronomy 32, to me belongs vengeance and recompense. Their foot will slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that will come upon them make haste. For the Lord will judge his people. And <clears throat> so the picture we get there from Deuteronomy is that the Lord is the one who will enact justice and vengeance, punishment for our sin. You following that? So Psalm 94, <laughs> verse 4. Well, start in verse 3. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long will they utter and speak hard things? And all the workers of iniquity boast themselves. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Yet they say, the Lord will not see. Neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. Understand, you brutish among the people, and you fools. When will you be wise? He who planted the ear, will he not hear? He who formed the eye, will he not see? He who chastises the heathen, will not he correct? He that teaches man knowledge, shall he not know? The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. Here's the picture. 
the fool says in his heart, God doesn't see what I'm doing. I can sin against God, and he's not going to do anything about it. He doesn't see me. He doesn't hear what I do. If I can do it in secret, I'll get away with it. Realize that's not the picture of God the scripture gives. The psalmist turns it around and says, you think the Lord doesn't see you? You think he doesn't hear you? If the Lord is the one who formed your ears, don't you think he hears? If the Lord is the one who created the eye, don't you think he sees your wickedness? He says, no, the Lord will hold us accountable for our actions. Just as it was said to Esau, as you have done, so it will be done to you. The same principle of justice applies for us. Our sins, for our sins, we will be held accountable. We will all be held accountable for our sin. So as Psalm 2 ends, it says, Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. In other words, there's only one way to have our sins forgiven. And that's through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who appeased justice because sin had to be punished. So Jesus bore our sins. He shed his own lifeblood so that our sins could be forgiven. And he rose from the grave so that he could give us eternal life. That's the only hope when we realize the trouble that justice means. Realize the day of the Lord is near for all the nations. And the day of the Lord is near for us. Justice will come. The Lord does see what you do. He does hear. He does know your thoughts. And he'll hold us accountable. And none of us can stand in the judgment. We all have sin. The only forgiveness available is through Christ. Colton? Uh, um, 